I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. The campus of Washington University in St. Louis is probably most famous for the fact that it's the location of my wife and I sharing our first kiss. But Washington University also happens to be famous as the starting line for the marathon race during the 1904 Olympics and what one must remember in this history the history about the marathon, not the kiss, is that the Olympic movement founded by Pierre de Coubertin was just barely picking up steam in 1904. The first games, of course, were held in Athens in 1896, four years later there in Paris, and in 1904 in St. Louis, Missouri. And we think of the Olympic Games as being highly planned, carefully regulated events, but it didn't start out that way. And to prove this point, we're going to hear about some highly irregular events at the 1904 Olympic Games in St. Louis that, if they were to occur today, would make for an international scandal, I think. But today they just kind of make us snicker or maybe even laugh out loud. To share some of the details, we have with us Jody Sowell of the Missouri Historical Society. Sowell serves as managing director there of Strategic Initiatives. The Historical Society oversees the Missouri History Museum, the Soldiers Memorial Military Museum, and a library and a research center. Sowell has worked as a journalist and as a professor, and he's on the line with us. Jody Sowell, welcome to Constant Wonder. Oh, great. So good to be here. Uh, did you get a medal for that first? <laughs> I gold, sh- silver, or bronze? I, I, I should have gotten the gold. Uh, I'm still, oh, wow. I, I'm waiting for the gold. <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, before we dive into the big stories, this outlandish business, the craziness of those games in 1904, I have heard that among your favorite athletic contests back then was something called the plunge for distance. I've never heard of that. What, what What's the plunge for distance? <laughs> Well, there's a reason you have never heard about that. It's because this was its one and only appearance in the Olympic Games was in 1904 in St. Louis. And you you talked about some of those irregularities and differences between the Olympics we know today and the Olympics we know uh, from 1904, and that's one of them. The plunge for distance was a little bit like – a long jump for divers. So the idea was you would jump off this platform, you would glide underwater, not using your hands or your legs, and whoever went the farthest won an Olympic gold medal. Um, This is the only time it appears in the Olympics. By the way, the winner uh, was William Dickey of New York, and he went 62 feet, six inches underwater. And I have no idea whether that's a good distance or a bad, uh, <laughs> but it got him a gold medal in 1904. I'm trying to imagine this. You say uh, a plunge for me is something that's vertical, like a diver would go straight down. But it sounds right. to me- this, is, this is more horizontal, sort of uh, skimming underwater for as long as you can go. I mean, I think we did this as kids, right, sometimes, yeah. uh, more to see how long we could hold our breath. Um, but this is an official Olympic sport. Um, you know, it's interesting, especially when you look at the athletes who competed in the plunge for distance. They don't necessarily look like what we think of as Olympic athletes. These these were not um, uh, cover of Sports Illustrated uh, athletic physique. So um, <laughs> a little on the chubby side, but they went a far way underwater. And again, uh, it was enough to to win them Olympic glory in 1904. As you described them, were you speaking somewhat euphemistically? <laughs> of the, uh, of the, the athletes? Yes. Well, uh, no, they were, they were truly literally on the, on the chubby side in this particular case. Uh, <laughs> okay. Not all sports were that, but uh, yeah. So. And, and maybe we should also bear in mind there were no underwater cams at that time. You couldn't see if they were <laughs> cheating by wiggling their toes or fingers. That's right. And uh, also some of the the lakes that they competed in were not not um, maybe of the cleanest quality either. So uh, this uh, not always uh, pleasant sports, um, including the marathon, whenever we talk about that. I'm, I'm just going to hold out uh, for the synchronized plunge for distance. That would be fun to watch. <laughs> yeah, well, it would. Let's talk about St. Louis 1904. There was some kind of a controversy about where those games were even to be held in the first place. What happened there? A a tussle between Chicago and St. Louis? 
Well, and you you mentioned the important fact. So the modern Olympic Games had just started a few years before. They had started in 1896. Of course, it makes sense. Let's have the first Games in Greece. So those were held in Athens. And then 1900, they had it in Paris. You mentioned Pierre de Coubertin, the real father of the modern-day Olympic movement. Well, he's from Paris, so it makes sense that he would want the next ones there. Uh, The third Games, though, they they knew they needed to be in the United States. The United States, even then was sports crazy, Um, and everyone knew, well, this is the way, if we're going to get our new Olympic movement to build, we need to take it to the United States. Some people, by the way, weren't even sure that this was a good idea. This idea of moving this event every four years to a different country, it seems so natural to us now, but it was thought of as maybe foolish back then. So they needed the United States uh, efforts to be successful. So There were a few cities that ended up uh, thinking about trying to host, but there were really only two that made official proposals, and those were Chicago and St. Louis. Well, if you were going to have an Olympic Games in the United States in 1904, there was really only one natural choice for that, and that was Chicago. Chicago won the vote unanimously. The International Olympic Committee unanimously said that Chicago should be the host. Um, Chicago was very proud. The only thing they said was winning over such a small city like St. Louis was not something to be particularly proud of. So, So they did a lot of boasting. They did a lot of celebrating. And that would sort of come back to haunt them because... St. Louis was going to hold a World's Fair in 1903, but that World's Fair got moved to 1904. And when it got moved, St. Louis, who originally wanted the Olympics, called up the International Olympic Committee and said, you know what, we're about to have this huge World's Fair. It's going to get attention around the world. People are going to come to it. And we're going to have an international athletic competition the same year that you're trying to have an Olympics in Chicago. So maybe you should reconsider and move those games to St. Louis. Well, Chicago thought about all sorts of things. Maybe we could do the Olympics in 1905 instead of 1904. Maybe we could split between St. Louis and Chicago. But those original International Olympic Committee organizers This was just their third games. They needed it to be a success. So in February of 1903, they reversed their decision and said, no, we're not going to do it in Chicago. We're going to do it in St. Louis. So St. Louis becomes the first American city to host the Olympics. So that uh, World's Fair was just a juicy plum to dangle out there for the IOC. Uh, A juicy plum, but also a competition, speaking of sports, a competition they did not want to have and that they did not like their chance of winning. If they were going to convince the world that this was the new idea, moving these games to a different country every year, every four years, they really couldn't afford to have it not go well or to be overshadowed by an athletic competition in another city. Well, this new marriage that's proposed between Coubertin and then the folks in St. Louis, it's, it's not the, well, it's not destined to be a great relationship, I guess, from what I hear. There's this James Sullivan, and Sullivan and Coubertin, a uh, little bit of tension there? A little bit of tension, a little bit of competition of who's really in control. James Sullivan is the director of athletics for the whole World's Fair, um, and as part of that is also helping to organize the Olympics. Um, And that's where things actually get pretty confusing, even for modern-day historians, because there were all of these athletic competitions that were held as part of the World's Fair. The World's Fair goes on from April 30th to December 1st that year, and there are events throughout that time. Many of those events end up being called part of the Olympics, but they were never officially part of the Olympics. Um, The Olympics itself only runs for uh, a couple of weeks, sort of similar to now, August 29th to September 3rd. Um, But because of this confusion, people think things like 
high school basketball games were part of the 1904 Olympics or mud fighting or grease pole climbing were part of the 1904 Olympics. Um, There wasn't actually as much confusion then. If you go back and read the papers from 1904, they understood the difference between the official Olympic Games and these other sporting events. But because they were sometimes labeled as Olympic Games, future generations had been confused about what was an Olympic game and what was just part of the World's Fair. And by the way, it doesn't help that many of those athletic events as part of the World's Fair were inherently racist um, and incredibly problematic and troubling. especially something called the Anthropology Days. Well, you can't just uh, leave us on the edge of a cliff there. What were these Anthropology Days? Yeah, so Anthropology Days, part of the 1904 World's Fair were uh, putting people on display, sometimes called human zoos. Um, One of the biggest exhibits was uh, a Philippines exhibit where you supposedly could go as a visitor and see how people of the Philippines were living. Of course, the United States was taking over the Philippines, and so it was a big uh, show of sort of, oh, here comes the United States to civilize these people. Um, But the Anthropology Days was a series of um, events that would oftentimes take – Native Americans or take people who were from the Philippines exhibit, put them into games that they had really no idea what these games were. It wasn't something that they had ever played. And the athletic organizers would match them against American, European athletes uh, as part of an effort to show the sort of superiority of the white race. Um, This is a troubling part of World's Fair history, a troubling part of St. Louis history and American history. It wasn't an official part of the Olympics, um, but it was all mixed in with these athletic events, all of which were under the man that you mentioned, James Sullivan. Yeah, so I can see how years later, in retrospect, people would just sort of conflate the whole year and say, that was a big whopping grand year in St. Louis, and do you remember when? And it all becomes a big mashup. It it is. It's interesting, though. Much like what happened then, when St. Louisans think of 1904, you can probably ask just about any St. Louisan from 4 to 94 years of age what happened in 1904, and they will tell you, oh, it was the World's Fair. Many of them don't realize that the first Olympic Games also happened in 1904 in St. Louis, because what happens is the World's Fair, which has all of this grand splendor, 20 million people attended, it has the huge Ferris wheel, it has the lights, it has all of these displays from around the world, it truly overshadows the Summer Olympics. So we think today of that Summer Olympics of being that time when people from all different countries come together and there's this great pageantry and there's this huge opening ceremony. Well, in 1904, all of that was for the World's Fair. And the Olympics were really sort of just this sideline event that was interesting to people who followed sports but did not have the kind of um, audience draw that we think of today. Yeah, so what I hear you saying is that here the International Olympic Committee is wanting to ride the coattails of the World's Fair in their own interest of promoting this new movement and in, in making that switch from Chicago down to St. Louis, maybe they shot themselves in the foot. (laughs) They might have. In 1900, actually, a similar thing happened in Paris that the World's Fair got more attention. After uh, 1904, they really worked to separate them and make sure that they weren't part of World's Fairs because they found out, you know, that we do need this attention. Was it... Was it a good decision or a bad decision? Well, that's still hard to say because, you know, they would also run the risk of, if they tried to have it in Chicago, being overshadowed by the 1904 World's Fair still um, and not even get any of the benefit of being by it. So 
hard to know whether that was a good decision or a bad one, but St. Louis and Chicago uh, remain rivals to this day, which you might know. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm a lover of St. Louis, but I will say, honestly, Chicago oftentimes wins in these competitions. So to see the Olympics come to St. Louis rather than Chicago was still a, still a bit of moment of pride for those of us who, who root for St. Louis in the St. Louis-Chicago competition. Well, you have more stories to tell, and one of the best ones that I know of has to do with withholding water from long-distance runners. We're going to get to that after a short break here on Constant Wonder. Stay tuned. We are visiting with Jody Sowell and talking about the 1904 Olympics in St. Louis, Missouri. Sowell is with the Missouri Historical Society. Constant Wonder continues in just a moment. It's great to have you listening to Constant Wonder. Quite a story from over 100 years ago now. We're talking about 1904 in St. Louis, the first Olympic Games held on, uh, well, in the Western Hemisphere, I should say, uh, the first in Athens, 1896, then in Paris in 1900, and St. Louis in 1904. And some of the sporting competitions there, really some wacky things took place. And we're going to hear about that now from uh, Jody Sowell. Sowell is with the St. Uh, excuse me, the Missouri Historical Society. And I understand, Jody, you had a chance to put on some kind of an exhibition. It was all about uh, this. So it's, it's right at the tip of your tongue. Tell us, uh, speaking of the tip of the tongue, a tongue can get parched if you're a long-distance runner. And <laughs> they withheld water from marathoners? Yeah, well, uh, you know, the, the winner of the 1904 Games, and we'll come to get that in a moment, said that uh, – that the road that he he competed on that day was the hardest that he had ever met with. And and here are some of the reasons that might be. I, I don't know if you've been to St. Louis in the summer, um, but it is not the best place to <laughs> to run. Um, so the day that they did this marathon was a 90-degree day, um, not, not ideal uh, running conditions. They were running on dirt roads, um, but coaches – and judges could come along in cars on the dirt roads, which you might imagine what would happen. They're kicking up dust on a hot, dry St. Louis day. Um, so these runners who are running on a 90-degree day on these dirt roads, breathing in all sorts of dust. And just to make it a little bit harder, um, James Sullivan, the director of athletics, decided that there would be only one water stop along the route. Um, and part of that was to sort of measure how dehydration would affect runners. Um, no, wait, 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 wait. This is an experiment on the runners? A, a little bit. A little bit to see what this is going to be like. Now, the coaches could give them help along the way, but – you, you might wonder if that help was really that helpful because some of the ways that they tried to assist um, runners was by giving them strychnine, brandy, and egg whites. Um, and so uh, this was a hard race. Uh, yeah, you, you had me at strychnine. Uh, right. Uh, turns out if you get just the right amount, it can only be a little bit. There are are some benefits, but, um, but, but, but most athletes wouldn't want to try it today. You know, one interesting thing about the marathon, um, I mentioned that this was a very different uh, type of Olympics. Um, and part of that is just because of how many people competed. So in 1904, you had about 700 athletes in the Olympics and a little bit fewer, and more than 500 of those came from the United States. It was such a United States affair that um, a lot of the athletes said, we, we didn't even feel like we were representing the United States. We felt like we were representing the Milwaukee Athletic Association or the Chicago Athletic Club. It was sort of an uh, intramural competition between city athletic clubs more than it was an international event. So the, tell me the this then, were the participants from international places, were, were they kind of uh, tokens? 
No, no, I wouldn't say that because you actually had some of the best athletes of their time. I think of um, uh, in swimming, Zoltan Holme, who was a Hungarian swimmer. He won two golds in St. Louis, but five others in 1900 and 1908. He really was one of the country's best swimmers. Um, Pericles Kakusis was a, a Greek guy who competed in weightlifting, who was sort of celebrated. But you would find events that were almost all St. Louis affairs. But in the marathon, you had people representing Greece, you had people representing Austria, you had people representing Cuba, you had people representing South Africa. So it it felt a little closer to what we expect today. Um, that Cuban runner, by the way, that's a story worth telling your listeners. Um, his name was Felix Carbajal, and he needed to raise money to make it to the United States and make it to St. Louis. So he did running demonstrations uh, across Cuba to, to earn enough money to come to the United States. Well, he did earn enough money to come to the United States. The only problem was he started off in New Orleans. And we all know that things can happen in New Orleans. Uh, well, what happened to Felix Carbajal was he gambled all his money away uh, and came to St. Louis only with the clothes that he was wearing, uh, long pants and a beret and a, a pretty flowy shirt. Um and so he had to run this marathon on this 90-degree day uh, on these dirt roads with the clothes that he wore. Um, he even took a stop to eat some apples, it said, and, and got a little sick and tired and had to take a nap under a tree. He still finished in fourth place. So he's not an <laughs> Olympic medal winner, but uh, I think pretty good for wearing the clothes that you came in on uh, yeah. and having to take a nap in the middle. Well, you know, roots these days for the marathon, they make a point of not going anywhere near apple trees. Uh, right, right. <laughs> uh, well, and they don't really like 90-degree days, dirt roads, or strychnine. But, um, <laughs> you know, this the first guy to finish the the marathon was not actually the person who won the gold medal. Um, you may have heard this story, but uh, Fred Lors, uh, L-O-R-Z, was the person who crossed the finish line first. So you would think that he would win the gold because that's, that's how Olympic medals are given. Um, well, let me guess. Was, let me guess. He was called out for doping with the strychnine. <laughs> no, that was common practice. Um, no, he, um, it turns out, had ridden in a car for at least 10 miles of the marathon. <laughs> and while the rules of some of these sports were different at the time, riding in a car was still not allowed for marathon runners. So there's some debate, by the way, about whether he was truly trying to trick people or whether he meant this as a sort of practical joke and later admitted to it. Some people have said that fellow runners um, ratted him out, and others say that, no, he admitted that he had not run the full distance. Um, sometimes I worry that people think because of that that Fred Lors was maybe not a particularly strong runner, uh, but the very next year in 1905, he won the Boston Marathon. So uh, this was a particularly hard day that led him to um, catch a ride for a big part of it, um, but but he was a good athlete on his own. Yeah, just way, 30, 32 people competed in that marathon, and only 14 finished, just to give you an idea of what a grueling day it was. Well, there is some story, though, about how, in the end, Mr. James Sullivan, the organizer of the Games, uh, he looked back at this event and said, well, that was a debacle, and we're never, we're never going to do that again, or something, something like that? Exactly. He said that marathons were man-killing in effect, and actually convened a committee to discuss 
whether they should be banned, the marathon should be banned from the Olympics. Of course, for your listeners who still enjoy the Olympics, they know that the marathon has continued and usually has the sort of honorary place of being, um, I believe they put it as the last event of the Olympics because it is such a historic part of the Games. But if James Sullivan had had his way, uh, 1904 might have been the last Olympic marathon that you ever saw. Well, you know, when you do dot to dot and you have to just connect two dots, just two dots, and you go from let's ban the marathon, but the previous dot was I'm not going to give them water. (laughs) Right. Uh, Yeah, uh, uh, certainly a different time. And, um, you know, it's interesting when he said that they were man-killing in effect. He said that he took that perception not just from the St. Louis Marathon, but also from the Paris Marathon four years before. So you think if he had made that recommendation or made that realization in 1900, he might have organized his 1904 marathon a little differently. There is a uh, a very heartening story, really quite an impressive story, uh, an athlete named Ray Yuri. Oh, yeah, he's one of my favorites. Um, and, you know, when I'm talking about the games, I oftentimes talk about, because I think it helps for us sort of um, people in the modern day to look back and think about sort of what are the similarities and what are the differences. I, I told you about the differences in that just, you know, not as many athletes, um, most of them from the United States, One of the similarities to the games we see today are those really inspirational athlete stories. I know my dad, when he's watching whatever sport, he oftentimes likes the sort of intros and where they really talk about the athletes and what they've overcome um, as much as he enjoys the actual sporting event. Well, you don't get much more of an inspirational story than Ray Urey. Um, he was born in Indiana. He became an orphan at five, um, and he was stricken with polio. Some doctors said that he may never walk again. Um, But as he was getting stronger, one doctor suggested that he might want to try jumping exercises. He was still in uh, having to use a wheelchair for much of the time, but a doctor said, well, if you try these jumping exercises, um, maybe you'll strengthen your legs. Well, those jumping exercises and the work that he did later led him to win eight gold medals in 1900, 1904, and 1908. In fact, he was the American with the most individual gold medals won until a guy named Michael Phelps, who I've heard is pretty good at swimming, um, (laughs) surpassed his record. So Ray Urey was known as the human frog. Um, He was loved. He was one of those athletes who the – the press at the day of the day always wanted to talk about how he was doing, and as you see, he was always always doing well and always winning. So, you know, I I like those stories that Bob Costas tells during the Olympics, and I can imagine if Bob Costas was around in 1900, he would be telling the inspirational story of Ray Urey with some really emotional music going on in the background. Exactly. Right? <laughs> exactly so. Well, in some here. Uh, Jody, would you tell us about what the legacy of the 1904 Olympics in St. Louis might have been for the for for the movement in particular? I mean, uh, this weirdness notwithstanding, it it was a bit of a boost, I think. I think so too, and I think uh, you know now you can read so many articles, and it will talk about the 1904 Olympics being an embarrassment or even a disgrace. And you don't want to you don't want to take away that part of the history that is a troubling and dark part of the history, though not an official part of the Olympic history. Um, as far as just the Olympics, you can look at all of the issues, not as many athletes, um, not as much international reputation or participation, um, low crowds at some of it. And you could say, oh, the 1904 games were a failure. But I think it's also important just to remember what what you've said 
I think, multiple times now. This is just the third Olympic Games of the modern period, just the third time that they had tried this. At any moment, these Olympics could have been ended. We could have said, well, doing it in Athens was a good idea, but but that that worked because it was in Greece. Or we could have said, well, sure, it works in Paris, but but now moving it every four years isn't going to isn't going to work. Um, you know, it took the people who sort of kept that Olympic flame going for us to have the Olympics that we enjoy so much today. And there were great successes as well. First African-American to medal. This was the first games that a gold, silver, and bronze were given to the top three finishers in any contest. So there's some real legacies that start in St. Louis, but probably the most important legacy was it just kept the Olympics going at a time when a lot of people weren't sure that this is something we should do. Such great stories from you, Jody. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. It was so much fun talking to you. And if um, your listeners want to learn more, they can go to mohistory.org, mohistory.org, and you can see some great photos, uh, photos of Ray Uri, photos of some of those crowds, photos of the plunge for distance. I want to see that. Uh, the, the the chubby medalists. That would be <laughs> Jody Sowell of the Missouri Historical Society with us. He serves there as Managing Director of Strategic Initiatives. Thank you, Jody. Thank you so much. It was great talking to you. Let's not leave St. Louis just yet. We're going to stay there and in the year 1904. But instead of the Olympics, we're going to be focusing on, it's already been mentioned, the World's Fair of that year in St. Louis. I believe St. Louis had the distinction of being the only city to host an Olympics at a World's Fair at the same time. About 20 million people are said to have shown up for the World's Fair, and if you can trust the bean counters in the day, taking whatever kind of a census or tally they wanted to take, 20 million, let's just go with it. What did they come to see, though? We'll find out when our show returns in just a moment. This is Eric Schultzka. You're listening right now to Meet Me in St. Louis with Judy Garland. It's an unforgettable song from an entirely forgettable 1944 film with the same title. I wanted to start with that song just to prove that something that we could easily forget in this whiz-bang internet world, and that is that world's fairs were once and still really are a really big deal. And they also produced some wild stuff and elicited some less-than-decorous behavior from otherwise staid people. The hoochie-coochie dance that Garland was hankering for, as I understand it, was a belly dance of some sort. But that 1904 fair in St. Louis was quite an event, as most of the world's fairs were for the past 150 years since they were first were invented in England in the early 1850s. That fair in 1904 changed the way the world thought about caring for premature infants, among many other things. But what? How did it do that? We're speaking this hour with Charles Pappas, a senior writer at Exhibitor Magazine and the author of, and this is one of the great book titles I've come across in quite a while, Flying Cars, Zombie Dogs, and Robot Overlords, How World Fairs and Trade Expos Changed the World. Charles Pappas, welcome to Constant Wonder. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, the 1904 World's Fair in St. Louis uh, was a pretty big deal. There was a lot of stuff. Uh, like, you could almost write a book on the 1904 World's Fair. Indeed. Tell us a little bit about what went on there. Like, what should we well, remember? Well, first, it was celebrating the Louisiana Purchase. 
Right, a hundred years. Even though it took place in St. Louis, which but that, so people often assume by the name of it, Louisiana Purchase Exposition, that it took place there, but it indeed did not. And it actually stayed and ranked as the largest World's Fair ever, only overtaken by Shanghai in 2010. Now, the size of it in 1904 was about 1,205 acres. It was about 1,300 acres in 2010, and the Chinese deliberately aimed at that. Oh, of course they did. Indeed, I mean, think about it. The grounds in China were roughly the size of Monaco. Yeah, but but that doesn't, when you say largest World Fair and then you measure it by acres, I mean, all you would have to do would just be to move some of the venues further apart and suddenly it's larger, right? It, it can be, but think of what the Chinese did in 2010. They moved out 55,000 people from their homes and then they invested up to $90 billion with a B into infrastructure upgrades. This was such a yeah. massive undertaking, but it's interesting to think that their template was something more than 100 years old. In other words, it's something more than a century old that they had to outdo. Yeah, well, that is interesting. Let's go back to St. Louis in a second. But just as an aside, um, when you say the Chinese moved people out, um, that's, uh, that certainly um, is something they habitually are doing. So um, I don't want to get into politics, but um, it's certainly something the Chinese are not averse to, moving people no. out to accomplish an no. objective. Um, no, not at all. So, so let's go back to 1904. Uh, you know, one of the things that's weird to me about 1904 and the celebration of the centennial of Lewis and Clark is realizing that, you know, 1904 doesn't feel that far back to me. And yet that was only 100 years after Lewis and Clark. Exactly. I mean, the world was fast industrializing. We were fast becoming an urban country. Technologies were starting to take root. So in a sense, the fair represents the changing of America, if you will, when we're starting to have these mass entertainments, when we're starting to have these new technologies take root. And some of them were very popular there. For instance, baby incubators, which most people don't realize hit a tipping point at that fair. Now, that's a weird story. Tell us about the baby incubators. It is a weird story because it's not really expected. You sort of think of, of these world's fairs as mostly food or some type of entertainment. But this was kind of unusual because baby incubators were known for a few years before this, but they had never taken off. As a new technology, they were viewed with considerable suspicion. And at that time, I want to give you some background here. The rate, the mortality rate in births in America was roughly about 165 per 1,000 births. That's pretty high. And to put that into context, today in Afghanistan, the infant mortality rate is 110 births per 1,000. It was pretty high back then. So to show people that incubators could help with preemies, you know, prematurely born babies, they set up a line of them. And then they went to an orphanage and essentially grabbed preemies and put them in there so that all day long throughout the fair, the 20 million people who came there could walk by and see how well these things worked. When you're talking about an orphan preemie, you're talking about a mother who just gave the baby up at birth, who yes. was uh, almost certainly an illegitimate birth, right? Probably. And, you know, imagine today that simply would not be even remotely feasible. That well, yeah, I think I think the federal government and HIPAA regulations would have a word to say about this. <laughs> at the very, very least. But again, it was the times. And they were able to do it at the time, and that changed attitudes overnight. Now, today, you think of that kind of technology, an incubator, as just being second nature. You don't even question its utility. Then it was, and then overnight, the power of world's fairs to change opinions, to change the public mindset, if you will. And that's one of the great examples of it. 
How do we? How do you people get to world fairs? I mean, uh, you know, you you got this thing in 1904 in St. Louis. Obviously, we have railroads, but you know, people used railroads more for immigration and moving than they did necessarily for entertainment and tourism. I, I, how do you get a significant number of people to the fair? Do we do we have any measure for like how many key people came from New York or Boston? How many people came from the Southeast? Is there any way of measuring the reach? The measurements are just in raw numbers. And, however, I wouldn't underestimate what railroads could do even then because these were considered such unusual, standout events that people would come from all over. Now, about 27% of America is estimated to have attended the 1893 World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago. 20 million came to St. Louis. In 1900, in Paris, for that World's Fair, 50 million came when the population was 40 million. Now, granted, some would be repeat visitors, obviously, but even those numbers give you a sense of just how popular they were, what a big, enormous draw they were at the time, because you could experience things you would never experience anywhere else. Okay, now that's a big part of your argument, is that these fairs, and not just world's fairs, but uh, convention and trade fairs in general, uh, have a way of transmitting ideas and technology. You already used the example of the incubators. Give us some more examples of how uh, the, the world has changed because people got to put hands on and see these things. Well, put it this way. Every time you chew a stick of juicy fruit, you eat a hamburger, you slip on a nylon, you plug your phone into a wall socket, you turn on a TV, you use a computer touchscreen, you withdraw money from an ATM, you switch on a computer, you ride an escalator or an elevator, you play a, a movie about dinosaurs, you pop a tranquilizer, you're doing something that originated at or was popularized at a trade fair or world's fair. All right, you, do, you did a lot of teasing there, but I have to come back to pop a tranquilizer. The world's first tranquilizer was introduced at the American Medical Association Trade Expo. And it was introduced in an exhibit designed by, get this, Salvador Dali. Because they thought, who better than Dali to put up something for something that would affect you psychologically? Wait, 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 wait. Slow down and back up. Uh, what year was this again? 1958. 1958. The world's right. first tranquilizer is introduced at an exhibit designed by Salvador Dali. <laughs> Indeed, it was it was called Milltown, and they thought that he would be the perfect person to introduce it. So he designed he designed an exhibit made of a kind of a two and a half ton, sixty foot long walk through cocoon made out of parachute silk, and air blowers made it wiggle like a cocoon. And you went through these stages in it where you saw these kind of really interesting cutouts, like women dressed with a head composed of blue, red, and yellow flowers. And sometimes you would have other exhibits of these kind of giant flowers standing by you by themselves. And the whole idea was like the caterpillar. You are in a chrysalis and milltown will make you emerge as a self-actualized, calm butterfly. Now, when you say Milltown, could you spell that for us? Yes, M-I-L-T-O-W-N. Like Milltown, is that the name of the person who invented it? No, it, it's a rendition of kind of a version of a New York town. It, oh, it town, I, I see. Say. Okay, but the, yeah. but the drug that they're promoting, what drug was that? That was called Milltown itself. The drug was called Milltown? Yes, yes. This is just weird. And doctors were prescribing this stuff? They would just go like, I mean, it sounds like they're promoting an acid trip. Well, it, it wasn't so much an acid trip. It was actually nicknamed Executive Excedrin, which I thought was kind of, kind of cute. But the effect of this display at a trade show was that within two years, Milltown accounted, if memory serves, for 30% of all prescriptions in America. 
give us some examples. You you listed a few examples, but uh, tell us uh, uh, some things that like Edison. Let's go back to Edison in the World's Fair uh, back in the eighteen eighty seven. I think it was. Well, actually, eighteen eighty nine, he helped debut the phonograph at the World's Fair in Paris, the ex- exposition. And what he did was rather unique. He had a phonograph playing recorded music, voices, and even the uh, French national anthem. And you could go up and plug in, get this primitive earphones. I mean, this is, you know, 120 years ago. Now, imagine for a second, what, you know, why does that sound so unusual? Imagine no one had ever heard a recorded voice before. It didn't exist. You could hear someone who was recorded a year before in a continental way. That was unheralded. That was, that was impossible. But it was done. And during this time, he also had his assistant scour Europe for celebrities and others, you know, to record their voice. And someone you might have read about in the papers, perhaps, but now you could actually hear their voice. And just by happenstance, he recorded the voice of the German military man, Helmut von Molke, who is the only person born in the 18th century whose voice has been recorded, which I just find kind of remarkable. Yeah, it is. It is remarkable. Uh, and this, so these fairs, I mean, that's these these attracted like the biggest celebrities of the age. Let's jump now to your first World Fair, even though you're not the biggest celebrity of the age. You were a kid, as I understand, at the 1964 World's Fair in New York. Indeed, I was. And it's a testament to the power of that, because 50 years, 50 plus years later, I can recall much of it as if it were yesterday. And there are certain things that just so powerfully stick in your mind, like the IBM exhibit, for example. Are you familiar with that one? No. Well, this is interesting because this is a time when computers are making their way into the public domain, when we're becoming aware of them. And in the 1950s, we had a short recession, which some called the automation recession. So IBM's job, if you will, at that point was to make people comfortable with computers. So I remember going to their pavilion, which was designed by the Eames, Ray and Charles Eames, the famous designers. I note that they didn't choose Salvador Dali for this. No, they did not. However, this was actually pretty good all on its own. What was kind of interesting is they took as their inspiration the IBM Selectric Typewriter, which was kind of quasi-computer, quasi-typewriter at that time. They took the typewriter element in it, which was a round ball. And what they did is they made something several hundred times bigger as the pavilion exterior with the letters IBM embossed 1,000 times around it. You're under that, and you're standing in a forest of 45, 32-foot steel trees. You wait your turn. And you go around to the front, and the front of it opens like a mouth, a giant mouth. 500 people go in at a time, and you're raised about 90 feet in the air in the dark. And then on roughly 22 polygon-shaped screens, different movies all start at once, yet they're all synchronized. So they all make sense about the wonders of computing. Oh, my gosh. I'll tell you, your description is kind of mind-blowing, but also I'm left wondering, how is this supposed to make me feel more comfortable with technology? <laughs> because it gave you a sense of wonder. This, think of this more as, less as a pavilion and more like a cathedral of the machines. That's what you felt like. A All right. Sense of awe. Hagia Sophia. Power. Exactly, except for the Silicon Age. And that's exactly what you were left with. First of all, you were left with the impression of IBM and computers being as synonymous, one and the same, as Google and searching, which they're not. But does it really make a difference at that point? Well, this was 1964, and it wasn't really until 15 years later that uh, the notion that IBM and computing were synonymous was, uh, was broken. 
Exactly. That fell by the wayside. But until then, they ruled it like their own fiefdom. Yeah. Uh, 1964 has uh, a resonance for a lot of people. Uh, one is, uh, and you actually participated in this yourself, the advent of the Ford Mustang. Well, this is one of the most interesting case studies of how a World's Fair can be used to create a tipping point for a technology or a product. Now, in this case, it's the Ford Mustang, which, you know, today, 50-plus years later, we all accept as a big hit. But at that time, in around 1963, Lee Iacocca at Ford was given a remit to create a new sports car. And he was only given... $75 $75 million out of roughly the $300 million budget he wanted. At Ford Company, they're still burned. They're still wary because of how much they lost on the Edsel. So here he is with a short launch time, a budget way under what he wanted. What's he going to do? And he figures, I'm going to launch it at the World's Fair. That's where I'm going to get the biggest bang for my buck. So on the launch weekend for the Ford Mustang, you're in the Ford Pavilion, and you go by a Mustang looking very cool on a circulating round wheel, and you go up an escalator, which, by the way, escalators were popularized at the 1900 Expo in Paris. So you go up an escalator, and you're roughly in front of another circulating platform, but a giant one with around 140 automobiles on it, all Fords, of course. And Mustangs were on it as well, 12 of them. And if you had a teenage sister, which I did, you inevitably fought your way to one of the Mustangs so the whole family could jump in. And then on what was the radio, you chose one of four languages, English, French, Spanish, German. And then you went around this diorama where you had giant animatronic dinosaurs fighting it out. This was like a version of Jurassic Park, except in the flesh, if you will, not on the movie screen. By the time you're done, you are so enamored with Ford, with how cool it was to ride in the Mustang. 22,000 Mustangs were sold on that first weekend. I believe 100,000 were sold in that very truncated first year of its sales. In fact, my recollection is that they delayed the launch of the car in order to coincide with the, and thereby shortened the year of their launch. Indeed, indeed. But they, you know, it was a risk-benefit gamble, right? And they, it paid off for them brilliantly. But that, again, is the power when you're talking about maybe 50 million people showed up. What can happen at a World's Fair or even a trade fair when enough people hit that critical mass? And, indeed, for the Ford Mustang, it did. That, you know, there was no looking back after that. Yeah. It was a hit, and it remained one. Constant Wonder producer Eric Scholzka speaking there with Charles Pappas, who is a senior writer at Exhibitor Magazine. Pappas is author of Flying Cars, Zombie Dogs, and Robot Overlords, How World's Fairs and Trade Expos Change the World. You can listen back to past episodes of Constant Wonder at byuradio.org and Apple, Spotify, wherever else you get your podcasts. Constant Wonder is a production of BYU Radio.